Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the ninth day of February, and yes, the year is still relatively new. It's 2022. <clears throat> hey, that rhymed. Uh, we're going to get right into our discussion of lipids, particularly fatty acids, because remember, that's what we're covering in these series of lectures. And uh, in a broad platform description of how fatty acids and their association in lipid molecules are, are um, a major component to be considered in many, many diseases and disorders, okay? And not always in a negative way, as I hope I'm convincing you. <clears throat> now, last time we talked about heart failure. Remember, heart failure is not the same is a heart attack. Heart failure means that the heart does not function appropriately to uh, maintain circulation. Totally different thing. And we talked about preserved ejection fraction uh, and that epidemiological studies have shown that over 50% of patients with heart failure <clears throat> have a preserved ejection fraction rather than reduced ejection fraction. And that the prevalence of this preserved ejection fraction is very likely to increase as the population continues to age and may become indeed the predominant type of heart failure, which is, uh, of course, the cause of high morbidity and high mortality. <clears throat> All right. Now, Let's get into some biochemistry. By reprogramming which carbon source is used for bioenergetics, the heart adapts to alterations in the regular cellular metabolic and hormonal network. In that process, cardiac protein hyperacetylation can be described. And it seems to be at least partially the result of nutrient-induced increases in mitochondrial acetyl-CoA pool. And that is linked, interestingly, to an alteration of the activity of deacetylases. Remember, deacetylases are sirtuins. <clears throat> and all this has been shown as an important disease mechanism for heart failure, both at the prodromal phase and through its progression. Moreover, an abundance of a specific lysine acetylation, remember lysine is an amino acid residue in the proteins that can become acetylated. It's a common substrate, right? So an abundance of lysine acetylation that, could, that we've observed in skeletal muscle and in heart and in liver does correlate with alterations in insulin sensitivity, therefore resistance, and oxidative metabolism, such as electron transport chain. And that supports a link between, we talked about this in the past, lysine and lysine found in protein acetylation and metabolic dysfunction. So that's why the deacetylases, sirtuins, are considered so significant in biochemical regulation. Remember, there are multiple forms of these sirtuins, these deacetylases. 
So the real question is, where does this acetylation come from? And how is it linked to reserved ejection fraction heart failure? Okay. So remember that ketone bodies, which of course include acetoacetate, acetone, which is basically just expired out of the breath, and beta-hydroxybutyrate, those are the two main ones are beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate, that those are the products of fatty acid catabolism and then this, the ketogenesis pathway. And that these ketone bodies, because they're water-soluble, can go into circulation, can serve as a carbon source throughout the body. This is what happens in prolonged fasting. Right. So it's the whole idea of removing adipose stores, running lipids via the lipoprotein pathways to the liver, <clears throat> oxidizing those fatty acids down to acetyl-CoA, and then building from the acetyl-CoA in the mitochondrion, acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is synthesized from an enzyme that's located on the mitochondrial membrane. And then those ketone bodies serve to use the originally produced and stored triacylglycerol in the adipose as a carbon source throughout the body. So it's a way of decreasing that lipid body mass, right? That's one of the concepts there. Now, <clears throat> normally, beta-hydroxybutyrate is in much higher concentration than acetoacetate. In fact, probably about Oh, two-thirds or three-quarters of all the ketone body is just simply beta-hydroxybutyrate. And the rest is primarily acetoacetate. So the changes in any possible levels of ketone bodies in circulation have been studied in heart failure patients. And you find alterations in those concentrations, increases and decreases. And it's not clear which of those two directions, which of those two valencies really is associated with a specific severity of heart failure. But it is known that increased ketone utilization is often observed in patient heart where there is preserved ejection fraction. So, no, excuse me, that's wrong. Um, in reduced ejection fraction, okay? So, increased ketone utilization is observed in the hearts of reduced ejection fraction. Now, this is a mouse model. The, the, the reason I made that mistake is because I was thinking about the human studies. Human studies, it's not always clear that there is an increased ketone utilization in the more healthy reduced ejection fraction heart failure patients. But that's what you see in the mouse model. Okay. And mostly when you do see it in humans, it's at the end, end stage of heart failure um, pathophysiology. So <clears throat> there are studies that show that myocardial ketone utilization is therefore beneficial because it switches from the Preserved ejection fraction type of heart failure to the reduced ejection fraction type of heart failure, with the latter being a quicker recovery road. 
So the effect of ketone body metabolism, though, um, is the key feature here. What's going on, basically? What's going on with these ketone bodies? I think you, I think you kind of know where I'm going here. So if you have a lot of inflammasome activity in the cardiomyocyte, okay, and that means that you've got um, the same kind of NLRP3 inflammasome in other organs, such as the liver. What you're going to get is an influx of fatty acid and smaller influx of ketone bodies. <clears throat> fatty acids are going to be used for beta oxidation. But the ketone bodies, although they will produce acetyl-CoA, and then through the TCA cycle, and then make NADH and FADH2 for ATP synthesis via electron transport and oxidative phosphorylation, <clears throat> some of the acetate, probably more than half of it, from beta-hydroxybutyrate or other ketone bodies, will be used in the citrate synthase reaction, which will take acetyl-CoA and oxalacetic acid and generate citrate to run the TCA cycle. Now, if you get an increase in ketone body relative to the fatty acids that are coming in to the, to the organ system via the cardio muscle or the liver or any other solid organ, it's going to utilize fatty acids, right? <clears throat> High concentrations of ketone bodies like beta-hydroxybutyrate will actually block the uptake of free fatty acid. So that means the primary carbon substrate for this tissue will become the ketone body. And there you're going to get massive reduction of acetyl-CoA and still a relatively active TCA cycle. So some of the ketone body will be used directly for... Um, biosynthesis, but a lot of it will be used in the TCA cycle to generate uh, ATP. So when beta-hydroxybutyrate when beta in particular is used at a higher level as carbon source and fatty acid, what you get is an increase in mitochondrial function. That, of course, means ETC oxphos. Okay? <clears throat> you also get much less of the pro-inflammatory cytokine production so the inflammatory um, aegis is decreased considerably when you use ketone bodies. So there's a drop in leukin-1 beta, there's a drop in leukin-6, there's a drop in leukin-18. Just the opposite happens if you're using primarily fatty acids. Okay. Now, the idea here is that some of that acetate may be used for something besides bioenergetics. Okay. And this is the question that we can ask. What else could be done here? What's happening? <clears throat> so it looks like there's an interplay between mitochondrial protein acetylation and the inflammatory response. And this can be linked then to pathogenesis of that preserved fraction um, heart failure type of modality. So increasing circulating ketone body will decrease heart failure of the more negative phenotype. And it does it by 
remitting the mitochondrial dysfunction that's associated with inflammation. And this, of course, is the production of reactive oxygen. <clears throat> so the inhibitory effect of beta-hydroxybutyrate on protein acetylation was achieved by reducing acetyl-CoA pools because you get a suppression of fatty acid uptake and activation of citrate synthase. Okay. So this suggests that there are mechanisms for the pathogenesis of the preserved fraction, ejection fraction, the preserved ejection fraction height failure, which is the most, which is the more dangerous of the phenotypes of heart failure. Uh, but also this tells us that we might be generating potential targets for the pharmaceutical industry to develop a pharmacotherapy for heart failure, okay. which is right now not moved much in the last several decades. Okay. There's a lot that works with atherosclerosis for heart failure and, of course, hypertrophy and fibrosis. These are all cellular indicators of um, moving through the paradigmatic steps to the um, prodromal and then full-blown heart failure disease. But we also know that mitochondrial hypercellulation and this NLRP3, remember that's a nod-like receptor protein 3, that, that those two components relate to inflammation and that that actually drives heart failure towards that preserved ejection fraction phenotype. And again, just to reiterate, the beta-hydroxybutyrate works against that. So that particular ketone body is therapeutic against the more dangerous heart failure phenotype. Okay. So now could be that apoptosis is also linked to this. And it's something that we have to look at. So how is apoptosis linked to lipid metabolism? Well, we already know this. A major component is ceramide. Remember, ceramide is produced in the sphingomyelin pathway via multiple um, circuits. It can be synthesized in a salvage pathway. It can be synthesized directly from sphingomyelin, from the enzyme activity sphingomyelinase, or it can be synthesized in the de novo pathway. So there's multiple ways to make ceramide. And all that ceramide moiety is going to be bound to fatty acid, of course, right? The ceramide is going to have a sphingosine base. So it's going to have a lot of that trans palmetto wheel uh, residue within the sphingosine base. And then it's going to have that amide linkage, right? And that amide linkage is going to be the, a typically a saturated fatty acid in most ceramides. And that's going to induce programmed cell death when, when ceramide accumulates. So you get the idea. Okay. <clears throat> so because there's so much misunderstanding about the pathophysiology of heart failure, this has really caused a nadir of good biomedical research in the area. We do know that that pres preserved ejection fraction is more likely to give us a, 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 a less favorable outcome for heart failure patients, okay? And unlike the reduced ejection fraction, heart failure people, the ones with a preserved ejection fraction tend to have 
primary injury to the cardiomyocytes and other systematic abnormalities, including, of course, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, hypertension associated with those two, but also renal insufficiency. And finally, aging, all of which are comorbidities or can contribute to the, once again, the preserved ejection fraction heart failure phenotype, pathophenotype, which is more likely to cause higher morbidity and uh, YAP death. So those are all risk models, and they have been worked into a rodent model. And this is where this research is essentially at right now, looking at mitochondrial hypercetylation and how that's amplifying inflammation, and that is a significant player. Now, why would hypercetylation occur to do that? Well, remember that many enzymes that are controlled by acetylation of the lysine residues are activated by acetylation, but many others are deactivated. So the next question is, what are the substrates for that acetylation? Okay. And remember, the acetylation is going to be tuned up if you're running fatty acids as fuel rather than ketone bodies, because the fatty acids are going to make a lot of acetylcholine directly in the mitochondria, where you're going to get this hyperacetylation. See, acetylcholine uses a substrate, see, for the acetylation, because acetylcholine is a substrate for it. So <clears throat> it looks like obesity and correlated inducible nitric oxide synthase and the activation of that enzyme, both are highly correlated to systemic inflammation and to that preserved ejection fraction, heart failure, phenotype. Okay. Now, we know already that increased ketone consumption in a failing heart is definitely beneficial. Now, there's a lot of systematic and systemic reasons for that. The largest of, of both of those levels of characterized pathophysiology, systemic and systematic, right? Because there's two different things, um, are directly linked to obesity, right? So we already know that obesity leads to multiple um, disorders because of dyslipidemia, thus inducing a whole host of increases in um, reactive oxygen, uh, pro-inflammatory eicosanoids, pro-inflammatory cytokines, proactive chemokines for inflammation, et cetera. We went through all this in the past. <clears throat> so it looks like by increasing ketone availability, you actually reduce oxidation via that buildup of reactive oxygen in the mitochondrion. And because of the effect of acetate being used as an acetylating agent to decrease the electron transport chain flow, because that's one of the things that happens. Hyperacetylation of proteins in the electron transport chain slows down the electron transport chain, thus increasing reactive oxygen, thus increasing the pathophysiological phenotype, right? So you get how this functions. This is it's directly associated with having more ketone bodies and fatty acid to drive the heart muscle. This is basically what has been discovered. Um, this is a relatively new work, like 2020, 2021, uh, is where a lot of this work has been. Now, let me explain more detail. 
Protein hyperacetylation has been known in the model to sensitize the the cardiac muscle in the cardium to stress phenomena, including reactive oxygen increases. And it looks like mitochondrial protein hyperacetylation exacerbates inflammation for the reasons I just told you, uh, essentially by facilitating the NLPR3 inflammasome organization. And once you organize an inflammasome, you're on your way to increase the severity of heart failure because you start providing that preserved ejection fraction phenotype in heart failure. Now, very specifically, hyperacetylation increased the mitochondrial localization of a particular protein, the adapter protein ASC. Now, that indicates there is a hyperactivity for the assembly of the inflammasome, particularly the NLRP3 inflammasome. And that's occurring associated directly with the mitochondria. So then you get increased mitochondrial localization of this protein, this ASC, which is the adapter protein. And that means that there must be some sort of mechanistic association between hyperacetylation and NLRP3 inflammasome organization. So it's difficult to know which of the proteins are actually directly linked with that association. But this is what this is what researchers are now trying to uh, home in on, right? So, <laughs> generally speaking, any kind of protein modification is going to have a direct effect on its activity. So we know acetylation does, and we know deacetylation removes whatever that is. So, if you look at sirtuin three mediated deacetylation. It appears that that could be the primary source for regulating, yeah, the level of protein acetylation within the mitochondrion. We talked about this several times. We went through the whole sirtuin family. So that's what it looks like is, is necessary to be able to ameliorate this. First of all, the ketone bodies build up, but also to activate sirtuin 3, which will deacetylate specifically proteins in the mitochondrion, and it is those acetylated proteins that seem to be associated with the uh, preserved ejection fraction, heart failure, which, as I told you, is the one that's more pathophysiological. Okay, And this is linked, obviously, to acetyl-CoA, because if you're using fatty acid fuel, beta oxidation, what does it produce? First, acetyl-CoA. Ketogenesis is secondary to that. So high level acetyl-CoA you have a lot of acetyl-CoA substrate for acetylation. This is the argument, okay? So more specifically, it seems that beta-hydroxybutyrate has a direct effect on protein acetylation. And it's believed it works this way. It's believed it's because it restricts the increase in acetyl-CoA within the mitochondrion during the early stages of metabolic stress. So extreme mitochondrial acetylation from acetyl-CoA in a carnitine acetyltransferase and in a CERT-3 double knockout. So we got rid of the carnitine acetyltransferase and we got rid of CERT-3. You look at that model, 
There was no change in bioenergetics, nor did you get an exacerbation of the outcome of what's called the pressure overload when you do a transaortic constriction, right? which is essentially pushing the heart failure, right? The, the phenotype. So you can study what happens when you push the heart failure in this mouse, is in a mouse. Now, <clears throat> still, this paper didn't go far enough to say, how does hyperacetylation alter the reactive oxygen species production? For example, which components of the electron transport chain seem to be the ones that become interrupted, right? My guess it would be probably the NADH oxidase coupled with probably the terminal cytochrome oxidase because that's what I know about electron transport and about how you can build up ROS in that pathway. It's my guess, okay? So it could be that those acetylations are occurring on those enzymes because we know that mitochondrial hyperacetylation does promote inflammation. You know, inflammation is directly linked to re reactive oxygen. <clears throat> and that's where you're going to make a lot of reactive oxygen because the source is going to be the rapid turnover of fatty acids. And that's why when you get that double knockout, you get that alteration in activity, right? It all makes, it all makes good biochemical logical sense. Right? So right away by this paper and four or five others that I found on this subject, it looks like there could be new therapies for people suffering from heart failure, which is a common morbidity in the elderly okay, and in the obese, and not necessarily in that order. So <clears throat> one of the things, again, that, that is pushed is way back at the level of diet, push for a more ketogenic diet, which means less carbohydrate in the diet, great limitation of that, less overall calories, having the total number of kilocalories uh, per day, uh, having it at least, that means cutting it in half, right? But also um, just perhaps using pharmacotherapeutic concentrations of ketone bodies to drive away the hyperacetylation of the mitochondria. This is also being looked at, right? And then, of course, there are multiple kinds of pharmaceuticals which can alter sirtuin activity. And we talked about those. So there are activators of sirtuin activity, and then there are deactivators. Remember those. And I'm not going to go into detail now because I know it's just going to be way too much detail for what we're trying to do here. But um, hopefully, <coughs> you now have. Um, a much better understanding of what's going on here. So basically this mouse model is trying to suggest that this preserved ejection fraction type of heart failure is a direct result of mitochondrial associated inflammation by the NLRP3 inflammasome linkage with reactive oxygen synthesis and then the massive production of, of course, ultimately downstream from there, pro-inflammatory acosanoids like prostaglandins, particular types, like the PGF2-alpha, but also the pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-1-beta, IL-6, IL-18. And that's going to cause a tissue eruption of an inflammation. And that inflammation then is going to cause apoptosis. And what will recover from that can be cardiac hypertrophy by fibrosis. Remember, fibrocytes are not cardiomyocytes, so you lose the function of the heart and you gain heart Failure, right? QED. All right. Now, <clears throat> I want to talk to you a little bit about interferons 
and the inflammasome, okay? We'll go through this relatively quickly because we don't have that much time left. We only got about a minute and a half. So there's a link between interferon, when it's a pro-inflammatory cytokine, and any inflammasome-mediated damage. This comes from a paper that was published in the Journal of Neuroinflammation just a couple of years ago. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind, central nervous system resident microglia and associated astrocytes, which are also glial cells, will produce cytokines. And one of the classes of cytokines that will produce is type 1 interferons. And the type 1 interferon works through an IFNAR, which is a heterodimeric interferon alpha beta receptor. It's a dimer, it's heterodimer because two subunits are different. And we know that binding of those type 1 interferons with the receptor activates the JAK-STAT pathway, which is a signaling pathway, which turns on interferon-stimulated gene synthesis, or ISGs. Now, I'm going to leave you with that, okay? Now, we're deeply into interferons, and we're deeply into the infl inflammatory response that's going to follow a sequelae to the production of interferons, right? And I want you to keep in mind what I've said, said now so far about all this lipid metabolism. Because the next time we talk, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to get well into cytokine production and inflammasome biochemistry. But then I'm going to reintroduce and rebuild back into this whole fatty acid lipid uh, alteration of metabolism. Okay. So uh, 9th February, Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios saying thank you for listening to me and bye for now.